Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the Talkie Bit. And uh, back into our consideration of the near and far enemies of compassion, and in particular, the near and far enemies of fierce compassion, that, that unique subset of compassion in general that brings together some of the big pieces of compassion in ways that generate action on behalf of those that are suffering. That's sort of the fierce compassion definition. Now, I've been approaching this series in a particularly serial way. That's, uh, you know, serial as in serial Netflix show, not as in serial for breakfast, of course. But since we're not really the kind of community where everybody's around necessarily every week, I'm going to start with a little bit of a recap. And uh, if this doesn't feel like it will be of benefit to you, then reload your coffee right now. But last week, we were exploring this notion that emotional reactivity is one of the primary or far enemies of fierce compassion. And, and again, just to define our terms, far enemies are like are the big obvious ones, which could seem a little bit counterintuitive. You might think that those are the ones that would have more impact, so they're near enemies, but that's not the way the terminology works. Far enemies are the big obvious ones. Near enemies are the subtle ones that, that masquerade as the real thing. So this emotional reactivity idea, that's a, that's a big obvious enemy of compassion. Or to put that all into ordinary speech, um, we talked about this idea that if we're angry in ways that mean that our anger is in control... Even if our anger is about something like injustice or wrongdoing, even if that anger is provoked by something that should provoke anger, if, if our anger is in control, we're not likely to be enacting compassion as a result. We might be moved into action by the strength of that emotion, because anger is a very powerful emotion, but the shape of that action will not be compassionate. It's more likely to be vengeful or violent in some respect, or something that tends to beget or produce uh, violence, the, the very thing that we're trying to undo. Uh, in our compassion. In summing up what we might do to avoid that particular pitfall, I talked about this idea that in order to practice compassion, our starting place needs to be, and particularly fierce compassion, our starting place needs to be an interior one. We need to start within ourselves. And one of our foundational tasks when we're doing that interior work is to get a handle on this strong emotion of anger. Not so we can deny it or tamp it down or repress it. That's not the goal. Emotions are. And when we try to deny them, we get ourselves into different kinds of trouble. So this is not about that. But rather, so that we can focus that energy. So name the emotion, feel the emotion, experience the energy of it, but then focus that energy on compassionate action rather than on actions that are the enemy of compassion. Things like, like revenge, for instance. And doing that interior work will require learning how to feel, name, and manage even our strongest emotions. And that work tends to benefit a great deal from practices like mindfulness or other kind of related disciplines that can help us deliberately attend to what we're experiencing, body, mind, and spirit, so as whole persons. And it's from those sorts of places and those sorts of practices that we become able to see ourselves as whole people and others as whole people. 
which then can help us to reach toward the suffering of others with compassion rather than with behaviors that are ultimately the enemies of compassion. All right, so that's kind of to recap uh, terrain we were in last week. This past week, I ran across a quote from Nelson Mandela that touches on this. Now, Mandela, well-known figure, of course, uh, history recognizes Mandela as someone who was absolutely instrumental in dismantling of South African apartheid. Mandela is also someone who, before they became the first fully democratically elected leader, uh, black leader of South, the South African community, um, they spent 27 years uh, unjustly imprisoned. So this is a person who one could sort of easily see has all kinds of reasons to be filled with negative emotions and to operate out of those negative emotions. And in speaking about resentment in particular, Mandela said this, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. <laughs> and one of the reasons I think uh, history names Mandela as a noteworthy leader is because they could bring big things together in short sentences, right? We've talked about that before a little bit. But that's a good one, right? Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. In other words, it doesn't work. <laughs> and perhaps it discernibly fails in ways that are similar to out-of-control or reactive anger, right? It actually it actually turns back on us uh, in ways that are destructive. Now, I wanted to sort of expand our understanding of compassion a little bit as well in the early going here before we get into the next near enemy, or sorry, far enemy of compassion. Compassion has lots of different definitions. Lots of those definitions are complex and multifactorial. And a few years ago, the National Library of Medicine, a very academic collective, reviewed what it called, quote, the existing conceptualizations of compassion. I, I don't know exactly how far that study reached, but the uh, results are voluminous, I can tell you that. So, and, and out of that study, they defined compassion as consisting of these five elements. And this, this sort of rang true to me, not only within sort of Western thinking about compassion, but to the degree that I've been able to dip into it, um, other lenses on compassion as well, including those from more contemplative and Eastern, uh, sort of geographically Eastern um, practices. Anyway, these five elements, they said, Having reviewed the existing conceptualizations, um, these five elements comprised compassion. First of all, recognizing suffering. We can't be compassionate if we can't recognize suffering. So some emotional intelligence is required uh, in all of this. Secondly, understanding the universality of suffering in human experience. So to, in order to be compassionate, we need to be able to recognize that all people suffer. And then feeling moved by the person suffering and emotionally connecting with their distress. So this is one of the things that separates compassion from other slightly more distanced ways of recognizing that someone is suffering. Compassion gets us in the gut. Um, uh, there's, a, there's, of course, a, a phrase in the Gospels that describes Jesus as compassionate. He felt compassion for them is the way it's translated. If you get into the original language of that translation, uh, you, you end up trying to define words that say things like... Uh, when Jesus saw these people that were suffering, he felt it in his gut, right? It, it was like a kick in the gut. And, uh, and, and that's, that, that's that aspect of compassion, feeling moved by the person suffering and emotionally connecting with their distress. So that's the third component. The fourth is, and this is really interesting in light of the third, the fourth is tolerating uncomfortable feelings aroused. So, for example, things like fear or distress, or as we discussed last week, anger. 
so that we remain open to and accepting of the person suffering. Because if we can't tolerate those uncomfortable feelings that come from actual compassion, we're gonna we're gonna be reactive, or we're gonna run away, or we're gonna but we won't we won't be able to stay in the game, and uh, remain compassionate if we don't learn how to. And they, these folks said tolerate. I think we could use a more positive, more even ambitious lens there, um, and talk about learning how to embrace those feelings. Um, and name them as we've talked about. But they said tolerating uncomfortable feelings so that we remain open and accepting of the person suffering. Fair enough. And fifth and finally, acting or being motivated to act to alleviate suffering. So those are the five components as the National Library of Medicine defines compassion. Now, in several ways, what we were exploring last week focused on items four and five, uh, particularly on item four, what we can do to deal with the discomfort that comes from seeing, so really seeing the suffering of someone is still staying in the game to do something about it. And what we'll be examining today will be more about items one and two, recognizing suffering and understanding its universality. And of course, when we do that, we, we trickle over pretty quickly into those other items that are about strong feelings. But if there's an emphasis here that's kind of discernible in terms of those five components of compassion, that's how I would delineate that. Now, I feel as though perhaps I should say something about the hardest part of that idea right up front. Not only is suffering universal, but the capacity to both respond compassionately to suffering and the ability to cause suffering are universal. This is the part we don't like in this idea, right? The the fact that we all suffer, that doesn't maybe feel that hard to come around to, right? Because... If we haven't experienced any suffering at all, uh, then probably there's something about our ability to feel that, that it would be worth paying attention to, right? Because it's, it's universal. But the idea that we might all also have the capacity to cause suffering that's innate to our humanness, that's not an idea we like so much. It's pretty challenging. And it's not made any easier by the fact that we live in an age containing so many powerful tools for amplifying polarization. The thought that the world might not be so clearly comprised of the good people and the bad people, the people who agree with me being the good people, the people who don't agree with me being the bad people, um, can be a difficult one to consider, especially from the vantage point of an idea like compassion. I said at the end of last week's exploration that today I was going to dig deeper into this idea of fully human. And to, to focus that a little bit more, I want to consider the notion of what we might call common humanity. And I think this is important because it helps assail this idea that we should think of ourselves primarily as individuals. It's only in some very brief, uniquely well-resourced periods of history that we humans have been able to even get away with thinking about ourselves like that. For most of our existence as a species, and it's worth remembering that our lifetime is is, you know, like the blade of grass on the football field. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really thin slice of the uh, historic wedge. For most of our existence as a species, it's been abundantly clear that we're interdependent, that we need one another just to survive, let alone thrive. And even under these unique circumstances, when things get tough for us, we can still feel it. No matter how much of a cushion our relative wealth, our technologies, our societal structures might have surrounded us with, when things go sideways, we can tell that we're not at our best alone. And we might not even get past this idea of railing at the government for not stepping up and doing more, which through this lens can be seen as an expression of 
we need some support here, folks. We're not doing a good job alone. We need we need to be surrounded. We need to be shorn up in some way. But we can tell we're not at our best alone. Common humanity, that idea, involves recognizing that truth and naming it. To understand ourselves as having our very humanity as something that we hold in common, that's a that's a disruptive idea in a society that emphasizes the radical individuality of each person. Now, to recognize people as individuals, distinct entities, if you will, um, that has some real strengths to it, obviously. However, that, the idea that, that there's a way in which that's the ultimate understanding of the human person, that generates some problems. And so there's, there's definitely some tension there. But that idea that that we can understand our very humanity as something we hold in common can help us to recognize that we all suffer, we all wish to be happy, for example, and we are all interconnected. And this goes even further, fairly quickly, in most ideologies or most sort of um, points of view that emphasize this. It's not just that we're connected to one another, it's that everything is connected. We'll get into that. Now, where this can go off the rails really easily and early in our human experiences in ways that are pretty subtle, so we really need to pay attention, is when we imagine that we're morally superior to someone else. As soon as we enter that space of moral judgment and understand ourselves to be superior to somebody else morally, we start to create distance between us and them. We start to create a disconnect. We begin to other whomever we perceive as morally less than us. And when we take this to an extreme, it becomes something that is sometimes called demonizing. Now, (laughs) if you grew up around certain religious traditions, uh, or read perhaps particular um, religious uh, fiction, does the name Frank Peretti ring anybody's bell? Anyway, if you grew up around certain that with certain lenses on the spiritual realm, uh, it might be important for me to clarify for you that I don't mean literally thinking of others as demons. Um, it's not about anthropomorphizing demons. In common English usage, the, the word demonizing means to portray someone or something as evil or worthy of contempt or blame or to vilify. Now, you know, looking at somebody that we don't like or whose position we don't share or who's doing something that we see as wrong or evil in the world and going, you're a demon, uh, that's different than going, I I hold you in contempt. I blame you for this. Um, Those are things that are easier to imagine, right? And that's what the word demonizing means. Demonizing is a far enemy of compassion. Let me unpack that a little bit. Actually, I'm going to get some help unpacking this because this is not a this is not an idea our society features and uh, and so we kind of have to look we have to look a little bit outside perhaps of the loudest part of our shared discourse in this part of the world to uh, to get some insight into this there is a beautiful and also very challenging poem by Thich Nhat Hanh the the Buddhist thinker and uh, and leader that is called, Please Call Me By My True Names, that speaks to this. And I considered sharing just one stanza of this with us, but the longer I spent with that idea, the more I was of the mind to read the whole thing, which I'm going to do, and then I'm going to let Thich Nhat Hanh comment on his own work, because he has some recorded commentary on this. Now, 
forewarned, forearmed, folks. Um, there are some ideas in here that might be pretty hard to consider, uh, or that might have an unfamiliar ring to them, or that might take ideas that we think are, you know, nice and okay and interesting. It might take them further than we're used to them being taken in ways that uh, that are foreign for sure, but that might even, you know, get our back up. That's okay. Uh, disruption is part of learning and change, and uh, I don't feel apologetic about that, but I also want you to be aware. That might all sound kind of vague to our ears and minds, or um, we'll encounter ideas in this poem that are articulated in ways that blend things that we're not used to seeing blended or hearing blended, or that take some ideas that we might kind of be interested in, but we're in the early going. So for those of you that were around uh, when we watched that uh, short film about Treeline uh, together the other week, some of those same kinds of ideas are starting to show up in Western science and Western culture and Western dialogue in, the, in sort of the public square, if you will. Um, but they're pretty, it's pretty early going in this part of the world for a lot of this stuff. And so just to be aware, and if it helps, I would suggest that it's important for us to keep in mind that what we're looking for is a way to continue to feel what the person who is not us is feeling, to be willing to consider their suffering and its possible place in them becoming who they are, as far as we can tell who they are from their actions, as well as who they appear to us to be. So those are all things that we're watching for ways to get better at discerning and staying in the space of. And also, I should include a trigger warning with this. I describe the poem as beautiful, uh, because in my experience it is. However, it does also speak of some awful things, the universality of human suffering being the rationale there, uh, including, uh, including rape. And so if you need to or wish to skip this part, um, please do. But uh, Nathan begins by offering us several different metaphors for just how interconnected everything is and how universal the whole spectrum of experience is uh, in our common humanity. So please call me by my true names. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second... I am arriving, to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I'm going to pause there just to say that you may recognize uh, in that idea, the rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive, um, the same sort of vantage point on interconnectedness that was present when Wally shared um, the sacred teachings that he's a knowledge keeper of, the indigenous teachings that he shared with us. This is the drum uh, in many of those teachings, right? The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And... I am the arms merchant, 
selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please, call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and my laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please, Call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Uh, It's not a hard poem to find online. I know hearing a poem read is different than seeing it in print, and they're both really important ways to experience something like that kind of uh, literature. Uh, The poem is called Please Call Me By My True Names. If you just search that um, anywhere online, it's easy to find. I said I would have uh, Thich Nhat Hanh speak to his own work. So this is what he writes about the story, what he calls the story of the poem. These are his words. After the Vietnam War, um, and Thich Nhat Hanh is Vietnamese, uh, just to, to be clear. After the Vietnam War, many people wrote to us in Plum Village. Uh, Plum Village is the monastic community uh, of which Nhat Hanh uh, is a part and a leader. We received hundreds of letters each week from the refugee camps in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines, hundreds each week. It was very painful to read them, but we had to be in contact. We tried our best to help, but the suffering was enormous, and sometimes we were discouraged. It is said that half the boat people fleeing Vietnam died in the ocean. Only half arrived at the shores of Southeast Asia. There were many young girls, boat people, who were raped by sea pirates. Even though the United Nations and many countries tried to help the government of Thailand prevent that kind of piracy, sea pirates continued to inflict much suffering on the refugees. One day, we received a letter telling us about a young girl on a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12, and she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When you first learn something like that, You get angry at the pirate. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it is easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we can't do that. In my meditation, I saw that if I had been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, I would now be the pirate there is a great likelihood that I would become a pirate. I can't condemn myself so easily. In my meditation, I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day, and if we educators, social workers, politicians, and others do not do something about the situation, in 25 years, a number of them will become sea pirates. That is certain. 
If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we might become sea pirates in 25 years. If you take a gun and shoot the pirate, you shoot all of us, because all of us are to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. After a long meditation, I wrote this poem. In it, there are three people, the 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we look at each other and recognize ourselves in each other? The title of the poem is Please Call Me By My True Names because I have so many names. When I hear one of these names, I have to say yes. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know that any warning is adequate for the challenges that Nathan offers us in both that poem and reflection. There's a lot there to consider and to chew on. Let me leave us for now with the quote uh, from, from uh, Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas um, that I mentioned the other week, which speaks to the same terrain. And one of the reasons I wanted to end this way is because not Han, among other things, uh, was a, um, I mean, a Buddhist monk and a huge fan of the teachings of Jesus. And, and that intersection in itself is a fascinating one. Um, in any case, this, this idea. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Same set of ideas, right? Very similar lens of saying this is all in us. This capacity to care and uh, to do the deep hard work of compassion and also the capacity, the universal capacity to cause the suffering, to be both the mayfly and the bird that eats the mayfly, the frog and the grass snake, the pirate and the girl. I am going to leave it there, despite the fact that my brain is jumping from story to story, conversations that I've had just in the past two weeks with people who've been in situations where they realized, if I'd grown up in that situation that I'm observing, I can, I can see how that would have been me that person doing that terrible thing would have been me. And, uh, and that's a powerful thing to encounter and to have to consider. All right, that's enough to chew on for now, don't you think? Let's leave it there. Peace, everybody. Thanks for, uh, thanks for stopping by and for listening. And thanks for your interactions. I, I do look forward to and very much enjoy the emails that I get and the uh, phone conversations and the in-person conversations about these things, the shared contemplation of how we can grow in such a way that we deepen and widen and strengthen our capacity to be compassionate people, including when we enact that compassion fiercely uh, on behalf of those with whom we have common humanity, which is all people. All right. That's it for now. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.